So as you're turning over into Luke chapter 2, we have been talking over the last couple of weeks about the idea that these Christmas stories that are so familiar to us really represent some incredibly unusual events throughout human history. Last week, we looked at the unusual promise that God made when he sent us this unusual king, right? We said that God had made these promises back in the Old Testament about the unusual picture that this child of Eve would eventually crush the head of the serpent. And then we looked at the, the promise that God made to send this child through a virgin who would conceive and then that the baby would be born in this place called Bethlehem. And it's all very unusual. But this morning, we're seeing that many of those things fulfilled. But before we even dive in there, let me ask you, um, and maybe a guilty pleasure, but how many of you guys like to follow what's going on with the royal family? All right, you can own it. All right, some of you, so, I mean, no, not me. You read the gossip columns, you know, all about everything that's going on with Megan and is it Harry, right? You know, and well, so if you are, by the way, let me remind you, we fought a whole war so that we don't have to care about what's happening with the royal family, right? That was kind of like the whole point. But just in case you're one of these Anglophiles, you will remember a very important birth that happened back in 2013. It was the birth of this little boy named Prince George, right? You guys remember Prince George? And this is his dad, Prince William, and his mom, uh, Kate Middleton. She's Duchess of Cambridge, right? Now, if you remember, what's significant about this? Anybody who can tell me what's significant about Prince George? Anybody know? He's in line to be king, right? So he is third in line to be king after his grandfather and his father. So this guy, this little baby was... 2013, everybody was all a flutter about the birth of this baby. Now, it was such a shame because this baby was having to live in such a, a humble place, being only third in line to the throne. He was going to be raised in apartment 1A of Kensington Palace, uh, which, by the way, here's a, a quote about that. The royal couple will raise their bundle of joy in apartment 1A of Kensington Palace which has more than 20 rooms. How many of you had an apartment that had more than 20 rooms, okay? It's also the same palace in which William grew up, noted for its ornate interior design and picturesque gardens. When William and Kate moved in, by the way, know, it's normal for you to have to do some renovations before you move into a place, right? So they renovated it to the tune of four and a half million dollars, okay, for the renovations to their apartment. Now, this is, by the way, this is in 2016. This is young Prince George riding on a hobby horse that's probably like 600 years old or something like that. And you can see they're having some company there at 1A Kensington Palace. That is then-President Obama back in 2016 because this is what you expect from royalty, right? This is what you expect for the one who's in line for the throne. I mean, those curtains probably cost thousands of dollars and were hand-knit by someone hundreds of years ago. You know what I mean? Like, this is what you expect when you think royalty and in line for the throne. By the way, can somebody tell me one thing that the British royal family actually does? Does anybody know anything? Like, at this point, the, the system shifted such to where these people are basically figureheads. They're, they have ceremonial duties. In reality, they don't actually have any authority over the, the, the main government there of England, right? They're just kind of there. 
Yet all the world was abuzz back in 2013 when this baby was born. Some of the most powerful people in the world are hosted at this 20-room apartment that costs four and a half million dollars to be able to renovate. This is what we expect of, of a royal birth, don't we? Now, keep these pictures in mind when we look at the way that our unusual king was born. See, what we're going to be finding is as we read here in Luke chapter 2, all of the trappings that you would expect to attend a royal birth, there was none of that. All of the fanfare, all of the pomp, all of the circumstance, we actually get a little taste of it for just a moment, but it's to the wrong people. What we're going to find this morning is that the unusual birth that our king had displayed an unusual level of humility. In fact, if you catch nothing else out of this morning's message, here's what I would challenge you. If our king was born with that level of humility, you and I should display an unusual humility in the way that we live and act. Now, for us to explain that, by the way, let's be clear on what humility is. Some people think that humility is walking around moping all day. I'm a terrible person. I just, nobody loves me. I think I'm going to go to the garden and eat worms, right? Okay, that's not humility, that's self-pity, and that actually can become a form of pride, believe it or not. Uh, It's been said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. When you're talking with somebody who's truly humble, you don't walk away from the conversation saying, well, that person's really humble. You walk away saying, boy, that person was really interested in me because they ask questions and they lean in and they listen and they're not checking their phone. They're paying attention to you. They're interested in you. They're putting you in front of themselves. In fact, the way we say this in our family, not that we always do it for the record, but the way we say it in our family and try to teach ourselves to do this is Jesus first and others next. We're putting Jesus first and what he wants and what he desires ahead of our own wants and desires, and then we seek to do that for other people as well. Like I said, we don't always do a great job with that. But at the same time, that's the essence of humility, putting the needs of others ahead of even our own wants, needs, and desires. Now, it's tough because in our world, we're taught that you need to stand up for your own rights. You need to get what's yours. You deserve this. Even like McDonald's will try to sell you a cup of coffee to tell you that you deserve this cup of coffee. And in a society where it goes all the way down to deserving what kind of coffee you drink, this runs completely countercultural. So as we watch Jesus being born into the world in the most unusual way, Let that challenge me and let that challenge you to live with that same kind of unusual humility. To do that, we're going to look at the story. I love this account of Jesus' birth. It's fun, and there's some beautiful pictures in it, so let's, let's go through. We're going to see this basically in two different sections this morning. The first thing that we see is that Jesus' birth was marked by humble circumstances. Humble circumstances. Look here in, in chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. The first registration took, this is the first registration that took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. So this was, you know, if we just finished the census last year, right? Remember, you got the thing in the mail or you did the thing online. If you didn't do it in time, somebody showed up at your door and they, you know, took everything down. That's not how it worked back then. Back then, when they took a census, you had to go back to your family's ancestral hometown. So where is that for Joseph and Mary and and the baby that will be born to them? Well, verse 4, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, 
to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, if you were with us last week, you saw this is the fulfillment of the promise that God made back in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, when he said that Bethlehem would become the greatest of all the cities of Judah. And so here it's, it's coming. This is what's happening, all right? Keep reading. Which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Boy, it says it so succinctly, so quickly. We've got a lot of questions about all of this. We, we don't know for sure how long it took them to travel from Nazareth to Galilee. We don't know how long they were in Bethlehem, but as Tim reminded us last week at the Cookies Cocoa Carol event, as he was sharing the Christmas story with us, there's no mention of a donkey in here. So she very well may have had to walk. How far is it from Nazareth to Bethlehem, by the way? About 90 miles. So imagine, ladies being seven, eight, nine months pregnant, walking from here to Lynchburg. How much fun would that be? I remember at some points during my wife's pregnancy, she didn't want to walk from the living room to the kitchen because it was so uncomfortable and so miserable, and that's completely understandable and reasonable, okay? Yet, this lady here, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> So this young lady, keep in mind, as Tim reminded us last week, she's a teenage girl, maybe about 14, 15, 16 at best. She's eight months pregnant, nine months pregnant, walking 90 miles. It doesn't get better when they get to Bethlehem, does it? It's census. Everybody's had to come in town for the census. Keep in mind, back in those days, everybody paid a lot more attention to their family lines than most of us do today. How many of you have a family that still gets together for family reunions of 90 people and you don't know any of them, okay? All right, some of y'all had, had that like experience, you know, where you're like, oh, that's my second cousin six times removed and my mom's side who married that guy who was, I, I have no idea. I, it was that kind of world back then. Everybody knew their family. So they go back to Bethlehem. The town is going to be full with people from David's line. So now here it says that in verse 7, that when they got to Bethlehem, there was no room for them in either, depending on your translation, the inn or the guest room. Now, most often we think of this in our heads as they showed up to the hotel and there was no vacancy at the hotel. And so they ended up in the parking garage, right? That's the picture that we have. They end up with the animals, that they showed up to the hotel, there was no space for them, so they said, hey, we don't have anywhere, but you can camp in the corner of the parking garage if you want, because they were there with all of the other animals. The only indication of that, by the way, is the fact that Jesus was laid in a manger. The Bible never says a stable or a cave or anything like that. So it is possible that it was that kind of situation where they said, look, the only place we've got for you is over in the stables. There's another possibility about this, actually two more possibilities. The other possibility is that an inn in those days wasn't like a motel or a hotel like we think of. It wasn't a bunch of rooms or a bed and breakfast kind of thing. Instead, it was basically just a walled courtyard that would protect you from bandits and robbers and things like that. So it was just kind of a big open courtyard. Everybody just kind of picked a corner and, and kind of laid out their little plot. And, and if that's 
case, then all the animals would be kept in a stable nearby. And the reason then that Mary wouldn't give birth was because if she was in that kind of inn, if there was space for her to give birth there, she'd have been right up in everybody's business. Nobody wants to be a part of that. So it could have been an act of kindness, actually, in letting her say, well, you know, since you're about to give birth, why don't you go to the stable so you have at least a little bit of privacy over there? Now, either of those scenarios, not 1A Kensington Palace, right? There's one other scenario, by the way. Poor folks in those days didn't have a lot of room in houses. In fact, it was not uncommon, though, that a, a poor or working class or middle class family might have a small guest room in their house. They might have a bedroom. And then the rest of the house was kind of a big open communal space. There's actually some archaeological evidence that says that that there may actually have been homes where the animals were basically kept in one side of the house and the people in the other side of the house. So the mangers would have actually been feeding troughs that were carved out of the the floorboard or like in the floor of the, the dirt house. And the animals would have been kind of just a half step lower, if you think kind of a split foyer almost, right? And you would have had the bedroom on one side, you'd have had the the animals on the other side with the, the feeding trough there at the edge of the living room. It's possible this word can also mean guest room. So it may be that in that kind of day, like I said, everybody knew that who their family was. And if Joseph is going back to his hometown, because of the way the culture is, it's hard that he wouldn't be staying with relatives. There was just the assumption that that you're going to stay with somebody. If if I'm coming in from out of town and I'm your second cousin once removed on your mom's side, then you're going to put me up. That's just how this works. So it could be that all of his relatives, all their houses were full, all the guest rooms were full. How many of you guys are having company this week? Okay. Boy, everybody's fortunate. You guys are not hosting. You guys are... When you're in that, your mom's house or you're at your uncle's house or you're wherever you're going to be and everybody's having to fight over who gets to take a shower first and there's no hot water left because everybody's already used it all and everybody's trampling over the air mattresses in the corner of the living room, it's possible that that's the scenario that Jesus came into the world in. He was given birth right there in the living room because there wasn't any space for him in the guest room. There were already people staying in the guest room. If that's the case, then, then the manger on the other side of the room was basically their version of a pack-and-play. They just kind of put him down because that's the softest place that they've got. Now, picture that. Picture a house full of company this Christmas. And your cousin's wife, which, remember, there's going to be hushed conversations happening about this because they weren't married when she got pregnant. Now, they say there's some angel said something about God. Yeah, we know how this works. And then all of a sudden, she gives birth in your living room and lays him in the dog bed in the corner. Okay? Any of these three scenarios sound like how Prince George was born? By the way, you know, in, in England, they have social or uh, universal health care or whatever through the National Health Care Service. So, so you just pay for the extra stuff. You don't pay for just the regular part. Now, you pay it in your taxes. But, but at that point, uh, a night suite in the, in the birthing ward where Prince George was born runs about 10 grand a night, okay? That's just for the, the privilege of giving birth there. He has no authority. He has no power. He has no, 
He's a figurehead. Yet the real king of the universe, the real one who has all authority in heaven and earth given to him at the end of his ministry, the one who is raised from the dead, the one who spoke creation into existence and actually formed it, the one who did the forming, the one who does the sustaining, is either born in the corner of a living room or in the stable. And nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody hears. She wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room available for him. There was nowhere for him to stay. Listen, that's just half of the story. Luke's talking about this physical humiliation he went through, right? This humble circumstance where a rich, a powerful, a wealthy person would never be in this kind of situation or scenario. And yet this is how he physically came. But remember, there's so much more going on behind the scenes. This is Jesus. He's God. And he's taking on human flesh. Here's how Paul would write about that to the church at Philippi. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, speaking of Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Now, leave it there for just a second, Jamie. He existed in the form of God and did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. That's kind of a hard phrase to translate. It's hard for us sometimes to understand what he's saying. Basically, what it means is he looked like God because he is God. If I stood up this morning and I said, hey guys, guess what? I am God, okay? Hopefully you guys would have me committed somewhere because I obviously am having a breakdown and I need some help, okay? If I stand up and tell you I'm God, I'm exploiting that title. I cannot claim the title of God. I am not, I never have been, I never will be, okay? Yet for Jesus, it was no thing for him to say that he is God because he is God, okay? Jesus is fully God, as is the Father, as is the Holy Spirit. And we can get into the Trinity sometime over coffee. It's a lovely discussion to have. So as God, you got this picture? Like Jesus is God. We clear on this? Jesus always has been God. Jesus always will be God. Jesus is God, okay? We clear on that? Verse seven. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. God, Jesus, laid aside the free exercise of his divine right. In other words, he had all these divine attributes that are his and he has every right to. And yet for this time during the incarnation when he came to earth, he laid the aside, aside the right to be able to tap into that unless the Father told him to. He didn't stop being God. At no point during the incarnation did Jesus ever stop being God. Instead, he added humanity onto himself. He took on human flesh and added that, laying aside his glory. That man, like, you remember anytime anybody sees God, you remember in the Old Testament what happens? They pass out. They freak out. Remember when God caused his glory to pass past Moses? He put him in the rock and said, you can't look at me or you'll die. And yet Jesus laid that aside to take on flesh, to take on a body that, that would hurt, a body that could get sick, 
a body that could be bruised and broken? It sounds so sacrilegious to say it. God had to learn to walk. It had to have his diaper changed. He took on flesh. And he was laid in a feeding trough. See, we hear that word manger and we immediately think Christmas. I wish we would actually translate it feeding trough. Because manger has become this pretty term for us. We had cattle when I was a kid. We had a big old metal feeding trough. It's not pretty. It's not fun. It's gross smelling. There's cow snot all over it. There's crumbs of food. It put him on straw. Hay is pokey, guys. Have you ever laid down on a pile of straw? It's not comfortable. And yet the God of the universe did that for us. To quote the great theologian Linus, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. He was born in these humble circumstances. So here's the question for us then. If he's born in those humble circumstances, what greater humility could you and I be called to display than the humility that Jesus displayed when he was born as a baby in a feeding trough? Wasn't even at home. You, know, you didn't really have hospital births and stuff like that. But I mean, I, I know how relieved my wife always was when she finally got to go home from the hospital after having the baby. You just want to be in your own bed. You just want to be a- alone. And yet, here they're at somebody's house, or they're in a stable, 90 miles from home, 90 miles from her mom. I mean, think about it. So many of you, you, you wanted your mom there when you had your baby. She was either in the room with you or one of the people. She's 90 miles away. And yet this is where Jesus was born. If God would do that for us, then what right do we have to be proud? What right do I have to demand my rights when the God who created the universe laid aside his to save me? See, this was humble circumstances then that, that should cause us to be marked by an unusual humility. Now, things didn't change a whole lot after Jesus was born, did they? See, that's the second thing we see here. Not only was he born in humble circumstances, he was born to a very humble reception. To a very humble reception. Now, we talked about it last week. We said Bethlehem is this tiny little town five miles outside of Jerusalem. It's not an important global cosmopolitan city. There's not a lot of commerce. There's not a lot of trade. It's not a powerhouse academically. It's just this tiny little town. So as we think about that, who then, if you were going to announce that this baby had been born, because I mean, let's be honest, like Abraham Lincoln was raised in a log cabin, right? So we know Strong, powerful people who've come from humble beginnings. So that, that's, you know, not that uncommon. But let's think, okay, if Jesus is born here in Bethlehem, who's the first people you would tell? Well, maybe, you know, in those days, you'd have village elders of some kind. You'd have some kind of council, basically, you know, that would oversee things. So maybe your first thought is, well, let's go tell the elders that the king of the world has been born here. That's a good place to start. 
Or maybe you say, well, you know, this is the Messiah. Everybody's been waiting for the Messiah. So let's go, let's go see if there's any priests in town or whoever runs the synagogue. Let's go tell them that the Messiah has been born, God's promised Savior. Let's, let's go to them. Or, hey, the Romans are in town for the census, right? So let, let's go ahead and get this spreading throughout Rome. Let them know the king of the world is born and he's here. They, they need to recognize this because he's more powerful than they'll ever be. So I'll go tell the Roman officials. But that's not what happened, is it? Many of you know the story. Pick up in verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Well, wait a second. Shepherds? Really? Now, I know we have some farmers in the room. When you've been out with the cattle, how do you smell? Now, imagine you make a living of it. See, shepherds back then had to wander around with their sheep. They didn't just get to put them out to pasture in the morning and come back at night and bring them back into the pen. They had to stay with them all the time. There was all kinds of things that would try to eat sheep. If you have ever studied it, sheep are dumb. They, are, they have no defensive ability whatsoever. And so it's easy for them to get killed or injured. They'll hurt themselves. In fact, if they lay down for too long, they get cast is what's called. It's where there's so much fluid in them that if they lay down too long, they can't stand up on their own. They will die because they laid in bed too long, okay? Shepherds spend their whole life trying to make sure the sheep don't die. And that's a very difficult thing. Any of you who've ever watched toddlers have had a very similar experience, right? It, this is why I get to preach and I don't work in the nursery. Because I feel like when I'm in the nursery, my job is just to make sure that they don't kill each other for themselves. And that's a really hard job. So thank you so much to all of our people who volunteer so regularly to help make sure that our kids are taken care of and do a much better job than I would. These shepherds would smell. They didn't have time to go to school. Not only that, they didn't have time to to pay attention to all of the ceremonial cleansing rituals. So they were re religiously considered unclean. In fact, some sources even say that they were such a rough group of people that a shepherd's testimony was inadmissible in court. They were known as liars. Nobody trusted what they said. So what happens when the king of the world is born in a humble place the first people to find out about it outside of that family is a humble group of shepherds. Keep reading with me. So verse 8, they're out there watching. Verse 9, Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. This is the proper response, right? An angel shows up in the dark of the night, which Tim was talking about this on Sunday afternoon. It gets pitch black out there, and in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, boom, there's an angel. And angels, as they're reflecting the glory of God, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Now, can you imagine this? I don't think you and I have any idea because 
our eyes are always so inundated with screens and we've watched, you know, gone to the IMAX, you know, and seen massive movies and worlds that are not real and almost feels real because of CG or just how big it is. You didn't have anything like that in the ancient world. And yet, as they're sitting there, all of a sudden, there's this angel, boom, shows up right in front of them. A bunch of humble shepherds, uneducated, backwards kind of guys. The first guys to hear about it. This baby is the Messiah. He's the promised king we looked at last week. He's the one who's going to literally save the world. He's the one who's going to make everything right again. He's here. And the shepherds are the ones to hear it. Now it says then that a portion of the host, a multitude of the heavenly host shows up with them. That word host, by the way, typically means armies, okay? So that's why uh, the CSB in the Old Testament, instead of saying Lord of hosts, it says Lord of armies. Because when it talks about the heavenly host, imagine all of a sudden the fiercest warriors you've ever seen glowing with the glory of God, which by the way, terrifies everyone and in its unrestrained form could kill you. The sky lights up with a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill toward men, right? Now, that's what we expect, right? That's what the king should have. The sky should light up with the angels of heaven declaring the praise and the glory of this, this king. But they got it wrong, right? Why would you show up to these guys? Go find the, the village... Go, go find the synagogue leader. Go five miles north up to Jerusalem, or five miles west up to Jerusalem, rather. Go find those guys. Tell them that the Messiah is here. No. Actually, the angels went exactly where they were supposed to go. You know why? See, this baby, this Messiah, would one day refer to himself Good shepherd. We'll see this in January when we pick our study of John back up. But Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verse 11, I'm the good shepherd, and the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This baby that they're celebrating would one day be like them, not in looking over physical sheep, but instead laying down his life for the flock, for me for you. The first people to welcome the good shepherd were the men who were doing exactly what he would do. They were sacrificing everything and laying their own lives down for the sheep, and he would do the very same. That made them the perfect welcoming party for this unusual king. Keep reading there in verse 15. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. By the way, they would have had to leave somebody with the sheep. Wouldn't you hate being that guy? You couldn't just run off and leave them or they're all going to be dead by the time you get back. The rest of them run off into town. Verse 16, they hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring all these things up in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things which they had seen and heard, 
which was just as they had been told. They went, they worshiped the child. They told everybody everything that the angel had said. They went on their way rejoicing and telling others what they had seen and heard. This was the first group in a long line of people that the world would look down on who would see the Messiah when others wouldn't. The ones who would be around this king were the ones that everybody would overlook. You know how I know that? If you've got your Bible, keep your finger here in Luke 2, but flip over to Luke chapter 14. In Luke 14, Jesus has moved on into his teaching ministry, and, and he, he's going through and talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the kingdom that he is ruling and reigning over. And he said, look, this kingdom is not going to be like you would expect the kings of the world to build. He's not looking to build it with the most powerful, with the prettiest, with the richest, with the most influential. In fact, here's what it says. Luke chapter 14, start in verse 16 with me. Jesus tells this parable. A man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I just got married and therefore I'm unable to come. Blaming the wife. Hmm. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city. Bring in here the poor, the maimed, the blind, and lame. Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done. There's still room. And the master told the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. What's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about the kingdom of heaven that the Jews had been looking for for so long, that the religious leaders had studied about and knew was coming and they were ready for, but when it finally came, they were all too busy. They all made up excuses. You know, ever since this baby has been born, the rich, the powerful, and the wise have always been making up excuses. I don't need to follow Jesus. That's for, that's for weak-willed people who are easily manipulated. After all, religion's the opiate of the masses, right? No, I don't need Jesus. I, I, I'm a good person, and that's good enough for me. I'm sure that that'll be good enough for God. <laughs> I don't need to follow Jesus. Have you seen my bank account? Do you know who I am? I don't need this Christianity stuff. That's for women and weak men. It's the exact opposite, isn't it? It's only those who will recognize that apart from Jesus, I'm blind. I can't understand things spiritually. God makes them alive to me. I am lame. My heart is stained with sin and desperately wicked. I can't know it. It's so sick. So that's why he shows up to the shepherds first. The rich, the powerful, they would do what they had always done. They would dismiss this king. But the shepherds, the ones who knew they had nothing else to rely on, they went on their way praising and rejoicing. 
They had no idea what it would take for the angel's words to come true. The angel that day, if you flip back over to Luke chapter 2, verse 11, Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah. As you look at that, that Messiah is going to be the one who will bring peace back to the relationship between God and man. One day he's coming again to bring peace over all of the world as he fully exerts his rule and reign over all of creation. But nobody that day could have fathomed the cost. Remember that passage in Philippians 2 we looked about a little bit ago about how he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant? Here's what it says if we keep going. Going back to verse Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. When he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. You see it? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This baby, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, would one day grow up and his humiliation didn't stop at his birth. It continued as he walked for over 30 years as God in the flesh and had to put up with living like us. And then eventually one day, this frail human body that he took on would be nailed to a cross. It would be broken and he would die for my sins and yours. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, because that's what it took to draw us back to God. That's what it took for my sin, everything I've ever done wrong to be removed and to be paid for so that then he could offer me his life in its place. Because see, that's the best part of the story. Not only did he take my sin upon himself and die, three days later, he rose from the grave. And that shows that he's defeated death itself. So this baby that they were celebrating, who was the Messiah, who's the king, he was able to take my death, die in my place, and give me his life instead because he rose from the grave and now he rules and reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. Now listen, if the God of the universe would humble himself, to be born in a stable or a living room, laid in a feeding trough. If that very same God would humble himself to the point of dying on a cross, having been welcomed by shepherds and the lame and the sick and despised by the powerful and the wealthy, what right do I have to be proud? What right do I have to look down on anyone You see, others may sin, but I'm a sinner first before I'm ever sinned against. The the universe had to do this to rescue me. This is what it took. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that he loved us so much that he would come and die and be raised for me. 
and not just for me, for anyone who will call. So there's three main questions that I need to ask you then in light of the humble circumstances and the humble reception that he received. Number one is, have you ever humbled yourself and reached that point of receiving Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Or are you sitting there saying, nah, Sean, I'm good. I got this. No sweat. Christmas means a whole lot more when you understand what it's all about. And this Christmas could be the first celebration where you recognize it's not just some random baby in some kind of dusty story, but this baby is your king. Not just a king, but yours. If you'll but receive him. This morning, you can do that just by saying, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that I've done things that you told me not to do. And I I want to follow you. I, I know that Jesus died to forgive me. And so, God, I ask you, forgive me. Give me a relationship with you. And I want to follow you as my Lord, my master, my leader, my boss. I want you to be in charge. So have you done that? If not, by the way, you can do that right now. While I'm still talking, you, I, there's no magic incantation. There's no, you just, where you are right now, you can make that decision. You could be in your living room. You could be listening to this podcast as you're driving. Wherever you are, you can receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord and start that relationship with him right now. Just pray, talk to him. Prayers, uh, there's sometimes more to prayer the way we talk about it, but, but for today, it's simply talking to God like I'm talking to you. So just cry out to him right now. Now, if you're here and you've done that, then next question is, am I willing to live humbly like Jesus did? Putting Jesus first and others next. Is there an area where I'm being selfish and putting what I want above what others want? Hey guys, can I even push back a little bit against our our current culture and say, even places where I may be putting what I think I need above what others want or need? And I'm not saying that we become doormats. But the God of heaven laid aside the free exercise of his divine rights and walked around for 33 years, laid aside all of his power and his glory for you. So maybe we should not be so quick to declare, I need this, I deserve this, it's my right. Right? Is that fair? So what do you need to do differently this morning to be humble like he did? A third question that we kind of come out of this with then is, How do you react to the humble people around you? See, the first people that Jesus was proclaimed to, that the army of heaven showed up to to tell about Jesus, was the ones that everybody else would overlook. The shifty people. These guys were sketch. Or to make my daughter cringe, they were sus. Right? So my question then is, what do you do with the people that everybody else says, I just ignore them? How did you respond last night if you were driving through Christiansburg and saw that there was somebody that was sitting on the side of the road in a wheelchair right there next to Pete's Den? What was your first thought? Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is going to be rejected by many of the powerful, many of the smart, many of the upstanding and it's received by the maimed, the lame, sick. How do you respond to those that the rest of the world overlooks? Because see, our king came for those people. By the way, in the eyes of God, you're one of those people. 
Spiritually, we have nothing to offer on our own. You have nothing that you have not been given. Like, do you realize God doesn't have to kill you? All he has to do is stop taking, stop giving you breath. Like, you realize every single breath you take, even the fact that the atoms that constitute your body hold together, God's holding all of creation together. Colossians 1 talks about that. So all God would have to do is go, and you would cease to exist. So what right do we have to be pride, to be proud? What right do we have to treat others like dirt? See, our unusual king had a very, very unusual birth. Unusual circumstances and greeted by a very unusual welcome party. And if this is how he came, then may our lives be marked by an unusual humility. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this morning you're at work and you've got a plan. So as we take just a few moments to reflect on these questions of, have I humbled myself to receive Jesus as my Savior and Lord? Have I continued to walk in that humility? Am I still putting Jesus first and others next? And then how do I react to the humble people around me? Help us to react like the shepherds did, praising you for all that we've seen and do, done while we get back to work. Meet with us now. Give us a, a moment here just to take a time to respond. Move through your spirit and your presence and help us to do what you call us to do.